0: It's great to welcome you back to another episode of Thinking Through Autonomy. Please keep your comments rolling in about our guests and what you want to hear more about. We recently added an encore episode on automotive cybersecurity based on your feedback. And that's because I want happy listeners to Thinking Through Autonomy. We have nine more episodes left in this season and we'll be covering things like AI ethics, financing your startup, facing the shark tank, counter drone technology, And we'll be featuring a collegiate team that won a nationwide competition on homeland security technology that was sponsored by the Department of Homeland Security. Today we're talking with Jim Williams. Jim's been one of the top, if not the top, global regulator on UAS. He ran the FAA's UAS integration office. And if you've ever applied for a waiver, an exemption, or pitched a UTM scheme, you've probably been in his office in Washington or even have a waiver signed by him. He's in the private sector now and he talks to us about regulatory perspectives on UAS systems, autonomy and where it fits in government thinking, UTM and what we need to be focusing on, and how we need to think about complying with today's and tomorrow's drone regulations. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Jim, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. Good morning. I am so glad to be here. We are absolutely thrilled that you're here with us. And I just wanna dive into the discussion right away. Okay. I wanna start by talking about this seemingly, and and I don't know if I'm characterizing it right, but there seems to be a love-hate relationship between various sectors of the industry and FAA on UAS. And it doesn't seem that we have a middle ground. Is that right? And why do you think that there's this Varying sense of feelings coming out, whether you're a small vehicle operator or one of the big vehicle operators, that it's either going great or it's going bad. What what are you seeing out there?
1: Well, I think the the biggest source of tension is between the the industry who wants to move at the speed of technology and the FAA who is forced to move at the speed of regulation, and that you know that just creates this tremendous tension. Uh, the, the FAA doesn't have a lot of flexibility in in how they do rulemaking. It's all written into law uh, by Congress. and it's incredibly onerous. There's been a lot of of you know negative connotation about rulemaking and it's just been made harder and harder and harder. And a lot of the existing rules for manned aviation just are nonsensical for, unmanned aircraft for for example one of the the rules that govern the operation of aircraft state that the the flight manual for the aircraft has to be carried on board the aircraft well obviously that's nonsense for an unmanned aircraft cuz the pilot's on the ground that you know the the whole point of that rule was for the pilot to have access to the flight manual in flight and when i when i took over at the FAA that they were forcing companies to get exemptions from that and going through all kinds of machinations around you know how do we meet this rule for people flying with you know with that flight manual not on the aircraft and you know i i I, as an executive you sort of see a bigger picture of things and so you know this was more on the working level that they were doing this and i went to the the person in charge of that you know, rulemaking, who had the responsibility for that rule. And I says, why don't we just reinterpret this rule to say, you know, what it, what it meant to, what it's meant for is to give the pilot access to the pilot's handbook. So having it in the, with the pilot when they're operating the aircraft is, it meets the intent of the rule. And that's our interpretation. So we don't have to do this. And he was like, yes, we could do that. And, and so there was an interpretation, but believe it or not, there was pushback from the, from the the legal office on that. So it's, it's that kind of dichotomy that's really holding everything back and and those rules are very difficult to change it's a it's a seven to ten year process to do a major rulemaking project just because of the sheer volume of effort that's required every rule has to go through review at the faa review at the department review at the omb the omb sends it out to interested agencies in the federal government and with UAS that's pretty much all of them then I get those comments back those comments go back to the DOT back to the FAA FAA has to resolve the comments you know and then it goes through another the same process again when it becomes a final rule you do it once to say hey we were thinking about this rulemaking and then you have to do it again when you've got all of the comments resolved and after that goes out for public comment so it's you know it's just a laborious process and The expertise for doing this comes from the same organizations that are doing the day to day policy and interpretation of the rules. So it's the same people having to do the rulemaking that have to do the the rest of the the work and also understand the, the FAA has limited the number of people who can do this work by what Congress authorizes them to have all this new work has come in and Congress hasn't improved any increase in the staffing at the FAA. So, you know, there's, but on the other hand, you've got the industry saying we must move forward, we must move forward. And, you know, especially in the, uh, you know, the autonomous aspects are really, really tough for the FAA.
0: Jim, have you seen any other technology issues or airframe or certification issues during your time at the FAA that kind of had the same feel to it, where industry is saying you're not moving fast enough and the FAA says, you know, our job is to keep you safe.
1: Well, there's, there's been a few, but nothing on this magnitude. This is a, an order of magnitude more disruptive than anything else, you know, since the jet engine. I mean, when aircraft went from propellers to jets, there was this huge upheaval because of the the whole system kind of had to be redone to deal with, with jet aircraft moving at, you know, two or three times the speed of the prop aircraft. But that was more of an air traffic, you know, kind of operational Issues. Um, the one that I lived through more recently was when GPS was introduced. It was this, you know, mysterious military system that people wanted to use in their their aircraft, and it was it was quite disruptive. Now it's, you know, it's accepted as the you know the best navigation system around. Uh, and there was a lot of push-pull. The industry wanted to take advantage of it. There were real, tangible safety benefits for for being able to use it, but the rules weren't accommodating if you will for and, uh, for this new technology
0: and yet we we can't envision a world in which gps doesn't exist either in our watches our airplanes or our cell phones
1: i know i know it's uh it's crazy that but and i think the same thing is going to happen with unmanned aircraft and in, in 20 years it'll be like well, well of course my my urgent item is delivered by drone and you know that's just the way life is but Right now, we're just going through that transition period where it's, you know, where it, the conservatism of the FAA and you, you understand change is risk and, and risk is bad for safety. So the whole FAA is all about minimizing risk and technology is often, you know, about risk taking. And, and so that that push pull is always going to be there. I mean the the rulemaking that we did while I was at the FAA for small unmanned aircraft that rule had been floundering around inside the FAA for for a long time because the laws that governed how you approve aircraft in operations were also incompatible you were required to have an airworthiness approval for all aircraft and that was just kind of nonsense for your DJI Phantom used by a you know a roofing inspector So they were struggling with trying to figure out a way forward. And in 2012, Congress passed a law that said, okay, FAA for small unmanned aircraft, you don't have to do airworthiness. So I was able to completely throw out the old rulemaking that had been struggling for so long and and start over again. And we wrote something, well, we wrote basically what you see today in in a fairly short period of time. But the only way we were able to do that is that there was this huge push Throughout the government to get some sort of rulemaking out there to put, put some bounds on what was just exploding with the, uh, I, lo- I love the phrase. I don't know who coined it, but that that the, the quadcopter has democratized, the aviation industry because before to get up in an airplane to actually fly an airplane was a very, expensive and time-consuming process to get a, to get a license. Now all of a sudden you can open a box charge the batteries and off you go. And that just is so such a disruptive thing to aviation that it's it's really unprecedented. Let's talk just a little bit
0: about an organization that I know you're familiar with and that's the UAS Integration Office.
1: Since I helped start it. <laughs> yes, since that, that was your
0: idea. One of the things that, that I just wanted to focus on a little bit, Jim, is that I think there are misconceptions that Come out of the name UAS Integration Office because, you know, in reality, it doesn't run the Air Traffic Services Branch. It doesn't Mm -hmm. run the ATO, which, as we know, focuses on safety. Yet you have decision makers out of ATS and out of ATO who are responsible for a great many UAS issues. How does this division of responsibilities work? I mean, do you think that the UAS Integration Office has all the horsepower it needs to take these two very, very large and established bureaucracies and get them to respond to the requests that are out there? Or do you see a UAS Integration Office 2.0 that maybe looks a little different and functions a little bit different you know, over, over the next 20 years?
1: Well, when when I stood up the office, the idea was that it was going to be a, a matrix organization, and I had a branch of air traffic folks, and I had a branch of aviation safety folks, and you know we worked together to resolve the issues. Uh, and that that worked when when things were getting started, but as as time went on, the you know the organizations who were really responsible for for making these things happen have to be integrated into their the rest of the policy making structure and so after i left they they reorganized and it kind of went back to a more traditional you know aviation safety and air traffic control kind of stood up their own organizations and those have been growing i mean recently the air traffic organization created an executive level i guess they're a division i don't know exactly what they call themselves but under you know under one of my colleagues from when i was there and you know they're now responsible for coordinating essentially the same role that i had but across the air traffic organization so in in that way it's progress that they're you know it's becoming more mainstream in within the organizations and my old organization uh, has has given up the Regulatory role that I had because we we owned the small UAS rule when I was there, but that that has been integrated back into the 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 general aviation division, which owns owns that whole chunk of rules. So they're they're now coordinators. Um, my, Jay Merkel, who's who re- has well, he didn't replace me, but he replaced the person who replaced me, has has responsibilities to coordinate things across the FAA to make sure that everybody's getting stuff done and and it's so it's more of a more of a bully pulpit than a uh, a line organization but one of the things I learned as an executive uh, over 15 years as an executive at the FAA was that positional authority is relatively non-existent in a large bureaucracy and the only way you get things done is by building a coalition of the willing and getting everybody to work together to to go get stuff done. So I think Jay understands that and is trying to work within that within that structure. Uh, what most people also don't understand is Jay is also the coordinator across the the federal government and the other agencies to try to work uh, the the bigger picture issues, interagency issues. So you know that's that's a role that's kind of transparent to the. To the outside, but it's really important inside the government to have everybody lined up. Because remember, I said the rulemaking process it goes through all of the other agencies. Well, if you don't have working relationships with the other agencies, when you try to get your rulemaking done, it just you know it, it dies in the bureaucracies in those organizations. So it's it's very critical to to keep things coordinated. And so, is it perfect? No, it's not. But there is no perfect way forward with something this disruptive
0: well you know i've we've used the word coordination several times and you know i got to ask this question don't you think that there are times where the leadership over at uas uh, integration office is just beating their head against the walls because there are so many other parts of the federal government that are trying to stake a claim in regulating uas systems whether it's dhs and the counter uas systems whether it's secret service and the airspace you know, what's what's the secret sauce to making sure that government works together? I mean, do you have to go all the way up to the president and say, make let's make sure these cabinet agencies work together or is there a more nuanced way to do that?
1: Well, in, in sometimes it does take intervention intervention at the White House to get things moving. The reason that the Part 107 regulation actually got out in a timely manner was that the the national security advisor to the president decided that uh, it was really important to get this done. And and he started leaning on the OMB and the the other agencies to fast track it and get it done. So if you want something done really, really fast, you have to have White House cover, not necessarily the president, but you know, the, the White House is the boss. And if you get the boss interested in what you're doing, then things happen. Uh, the opposite is also true. You know, if the White House doesn't want something you're trying to do to happen, it's dead, dead, dead. So uh, to a certain extent, moving to the front of the line requires requires intervention from the White House. But the rulemaking process does work. You know, you can get policy through, but it's, but it's difficult and it requires a lot of coordination. And that's that's why the integration office is is still important and relevant because they can they can push those kind of things and work the not just the interagency, but the relationship with the department and coordinate across the the bureaucracy at the FAA to make sure things stay you know upfront and present. And when I was there, I had a great working relationship with the with the FAA administrator and and that was just huge to be able to you know walk into the administrators, front office, talk to the chief of staff, you know, get, get a little help moving things forward inside the FAA or even at the department. Um, so, you know, that, and that's why it has to be an executive level job and it has to have top cover at all levels in order to be, in order to make the change happen effectively and with, you know, at least some nod toward trying to move at the speed of business, not the speed of government.
0: Let's kind of shift gears just a little bit here and and maybe close our our discussion on the regulatory aspect of UAS by talking about all of these pilot programs we're seeing, you know, as they are um, relating to UAS systems, as they're related to UTM, we have, as you know, the IPP, the UPP Pathfinder, and probably about three or four other examples as well spread across FAA and NASA. And we hear that there are lessons being learned, but we also are being told that these lessons that are being learned out of all of these programs are used to inform regulation. What does it mean to inform regulation versus publishing a big database of lessons learned?
1: Well, one of the things you have to understand is that the FAA is exposed to a lot of intellectual property from companies out there who are trying to get things approved and they have a, a legal responsibility to protect that. So they're they're limited in how much they can share uh, when they're working directly with the industry. Uh, so a, a good example of, of how this works is we knew we had to do something along the lines of authorizing unmanned aircraft to, to fly in the NAS, but we didn't, and the only tool we had was the law, so we started doing exemptions. Uh, and that was the Section 333 exemption process that I stood up. That was that was intended to be sort of a bridge until we could get the rule out and final. And it worked very well. And the but it was a tremendous amount of of work because the exemption system just isn't wasn't intended to be an approval system. But all of the work we did, all of those, all of the learning we had informed that rulemaking so that like the the idea of waivers wasn't in the original rule just because we didn't think about it but because of the expertise we'd gained dealing with the industry and all the variety of things that they kept inventing and coming up with it's like you know we need to add some flexibility to this rule and so the the folks at the faa at the time i'd already left by then you know added that whole section on on waivers that made Part 107 way more flexible than it than it could have than it was uh, when we released it for uh, you know the initial notice of proposed rulemaking. So these these lessons learned are, are excruciatingly important to the FAA because they just don't know. I mean, the, it's I love my job now because I sit in between this this industry and the FAA and and almost act like a translator no, no, this is where the FAA is coming from. This is why they're doing this. And then on in the industry, when I go to the FAA, I say, no, no, you're not understanding. This is this is <laughs> yeah. the industry's motivation. They have to make money on this. This isn't a research program. They can't just keep doing tests all the time. They've got to deliver. Uh, so you know, there's, a, there's a lot of misunderstanding. So these working together projects, all of them, really help educate the FAA on what's really needed. So that it's not what they think is needed, it's what the industry is actually telling them. So they're they're very very important to do, you know. How how effective are they? Well, you know that the example I gave was we have wa- we have waivers in Part 107 that we wouldn't have had if we hadn't done the Section 333 exemption process. And
0: just to follow up on this, Jim, I've had guests on the show and I've had private conversations where I get the the very strong feeling that the Part 107 waiver process is working. That the 44807-333 exemption process is working and that the authorization process is pretty much working right now. It might be slower than a lot of the organizations were expecting, but in the end everybody is winding up getting to use the vehicles where they want them to and how they want want to, to employ the vehicles. Yet you know we've got people out there that are frustrated there is not a remote ID NPRM on the horizon and they're frustrated that because that slowed down, there's not going to be a flight over people. NPRM, I mean, really, does the NPRM, does that really immediately fix things, or, you know, is that not going to change?
1: Getting the NPRM out is is the first big, really big step because then there's there's a set of timeline, congressionally mandated timelines that kind of kick in, to keep things moving forward on a, you know, somewhat of a urge level of urgency, so the Government is very deliberative on putting out NPRMs and the the rulemaking process because everybody has to buy in. So one one little bit of inside baseball is if you've seen the, the flight over people rule. And there was a provision in there which shocked a lot of us that you can't fly over over roads. And I was like, where in the world did that come from? And so I talked to some folks in the FAA and inside the FAA, and they said, "Well, that was interjected by NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency, because they didn't want to increase the risk to the driving public." And that was and
0: understandable,
1: <laughs> right? So I have but- seen
0: drones go up and down um, the expressway, and that is disconcerting.
1: It is. and have you seen the seen the uh, I can't remember which farmers I think does the you know oh, sort of yeah. the museum James setting commercial. with the drone buried in the windshield? Yeah, so you know I, I I understand that, but the you know the the answer for the drone industry isn't ban flight over roads because that makes the aircraft basically untenable, but to you know have some level of assurance that it's not going to fall down on the cars. I mean, the FAA rule in Part 107 is you can't fly over a moving vehicle. So you can fly over the road, but you can't fly over the road when there's a vehicle present. Uh, but the the flight over people went backwards on that. But again, that was injected by another, another agency. So now you, you, that's just to give you an idea of the level of complexity of this rule. So the FAA writes it, coordinates it across the FAA, resolves all the comments, sends it to the department. The department looks at it, makes comments, sends it back to the FAA. The FAA works back and forth to resolve all those comments, and then it then it goes to the OMB. The OMB looks at it, and if they they if they have issues, they send it back to the FAA. If they don't, they send it out to the rest of the federal government for review. Then they collect all of those comments, send it back to the department, back to the FAA, FAA has to resolve all those comments, send it back to the. Through the department, the department has to agree with the comment resolution. So there's back and forth there, and then the the department has to send it back to the OMB. The OMB has to agree with the the comment resolution, and then finally, after all of this is done, they can go out for comment. And then once the comments come in, you repeat the whole process again, because all of the other the federal other federal agencies get another another look at it before it becomes final. So the process is just incredibly onerous plus there's a lot of congressionally mandated like you have to do a cost benefit assessment you have to do an assessment on you know environmental impact you have to do an assessment on impact to small business you have to do an assessment on there's one more i'm forgetting but all of these analyses have to be done on the rule and then they have to be updated after the comments are done to make sure that none of the changes during comment resolution cause that those analyses to be invalidated, no, it's no, wait, just did, nuts.
0: Did we forget the Paperwork Reduction Act as oh, well? Oh yes,
1: that's the one, that's the <laughs> one I forgot. I knew there was one I was leaving out, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, All I could say is, you no, know, that's a process and it's making that part 107 waiver and the 44807-333 look a whole lot more enjoyable. Yeah, well, um,
1: it's, it's good that we have those because that's the only thing that's allowing progress. Uh, right now, until some of these things get changed, and there's, you know, and there's so many rules, and so like Part 91 has a rule that says that you have to be able to see and avoid other aircraft, right? It's found foundational to the way the whole system works. the The word "see" has legally been determined to mean unaided eyeballs. So, if if you're not if you're so beyond visual line of sight is basically against the rules now fortunately that happens to be a rule that can be waived but that means that every operation has to be done under a waiver until such time as that rule is changed to allow an electronic means of compliance if you will no. well
0: let's leave regulation behind how's about that because this show is Sounds think- good <laughs> this show is called thinking through autonomy and I want to transition our conversation over to all of this aeronautical magic that we're seeing. Now, mm-hmm. your background is engineering and lifecycle management and, of course, UAS. And I'm kind of wondering, when you talk about organizations like the FAA and, and really the industry in, in general, how should we be differentiating among all of these remarkable technologies that haven't been invented for before Yet have manned applications and have definitely unmanned applications.
1: Well, the the FAA has dealt with new technologies over and over and over again. So they're you know, they're used to it. They have a on the aircraft certification side, it's there's a there's a process set up to do it. The certification rules even have a provision in them that said that, that essentially says if the rules that we've published don't fit your aircraft you can just propose your own set of rules based on the ones that are out there that are applicable to your type of aircraft. So f- for example, blimps, there are no, you won't find blimps in any of the FAA rules. It just, they're not there. So how do they approve them? Well, they use this provision in the the basic certification rules, and there's an industry standard from ASTM on, you know, all things blimp and you, you know you have to bring in your demonstration of compliance to that standard and you get certified this way. So the the new technology isn't isn't really the the problem for the FAA until it becomes contrary to the rules. So autonomy is really tough for the FAA because the whole structure of the FAA regulations is about you know starts with a pilot in command. So, who's the pilot in command of an autonomous aircraft? You know you can't you can't write you can't take a uh, uh, if an airman behaves badly, you know a pilot uh, behaves badly and gets caught. Uh, they suspend their license or they or they revoke their license to fly, thereby pulling that you know bad actor out of the system. how do you How do you suspend the license of of software?
0: you know? <laughs> We pull your plug, <laughs> right, De- right? That's the uh, autonomous system death sentence, and then we'll power you back up when we feel you've served long enough.
1: Exactly. So, the one pilot one aircraft rule was pretty sacrosanct until Intel came along, and I'll never forget the meeting with Chrisanich uh, and Huerta uh, when Chrisanich came in and pitched this idea of you know drone light shows and you know controlling a thousand drones with one with one person and you know and i was sitting there in the meeting going geez that's going to be impossible and then michael where i didn't say it out loud that's what i was thinking and then michael Huerta looks at Christiana and goes you know i think we can help you figure out how to do that and i was then i was like oh crap now i gotta figure out how to do this uh, but it you know we did it took about two years and they started issuing waivers for that so it's not impossible to uh deal with autonomy it's but it does challenge the faa and it does challenge the industry to come up with ways to uh, essentially justify the the safety of operating without a pilot and direct control and you know i, I think that it's going to happen and uh it's going to happen quickly once once certain uh barriers are down i mean the the, the faa is long known that software You can't test software safety, you you know, it's just too complex and too, too difficult to try to test every possible permutation and combination of what could happen in that software. So they instituted software process assurance and early in my career, I participated in an update of that of the standard and it's been subsequently updated again so that you use process assurance around the software as it's developed in order to ensure that it's going to gonna provide repeatable safe results but that level of discipline doesn't exist in you know the silicon valley mentality it's all about quick rapid rapid changes and beta testing and testing it in an operation and you know I, i've for many years i felt like that microsoft was using us all as as beta testers for their operating systems but you know that that just is the antithesis of you know of faa certification it has to be deterministic it has to be very well controlled, both from a configuration management and quality assurance. And so I think that there's gonna have to be some sort of meeting of the, the ways that the, the automation folks are gonna have to take on some discipline and the FAA is going to have to, to develop a level of graduated responsibility that kind of meets them halfway. And that I think that's in process, but the way that gets done is through the certification of aircraft. And I think that, you know, the industry is starting to step up to the plate on that and push push aircraft through that process. And as that happens more, the standardized ways of doing business are gonna are gonna happen and it'll it'll become more commonplace.
0: Yeah, and, and but yet what you described, the processes that we have in place allow an A three eighty or a Boeing seven forty seven filled with people to auto land in Cat 3A weather and come to a complete stop when there's no visibility anywhere near the runway or the taxiways. So so clearly there has to be nuggets within that software certification process that need to get translated back down to these smaller systems, you know? Wh- whether it's a, a smaller drone or whether it's something the size of a Global Hawk, which makes me wonder, Jim, do you think that the industry, an industry which really has no experience with that type of certification process. Do you think they know how to build their own roadmap to get to that point? Do you think they know how to work with the FAA to build that roadmap? Or do you think a roadmap is not really needed? I mean, because, you know, there are people that argue um, these vehicles are totally different and we don't need that kind of software qualification on our vehicles, because what what's going to happen? It's going to fall out of the sky and the propellers are going to fall out. Big deal.
1: Right. And for those aircraft, the FAA isn't going to require any sort of certification the part 107 doesn't require any level of reliability on the aircraft whatsoever and everybody's okay with that doesn't seem to be causing any kind of issues people operating under 107 uh, you know i haven't i'm not hearing anything uh, negative about those kind of operations but the the real difference is when you go beyond visual line of sight the level of of safety risk goes up by an order of magnitude both to for risk to people on the ground and risk to other aircraft in the air. Now, smaller aircraft, the risk isn't that high, but it's a lot higher than than visual line of sight. And the bigger aircraft are going to have similar, if not you know, more impact than than a small manned aircraft would have uh, for for various reasons we don't have to get into. But so what I think the industry has to understand is that the regulations are already graduated from nothing at 107 to an incredible amount of work for a, you know, 787 and it's and it's not, you know, it's not a linear scale, but it is a scale and the, you know the aircraft certification folks have been preaching risk-based certification for a long time and are finally and but they have been frustrated at every turn by the bureaucracy. They've been trying to release guidance material on this since uh, 2014 and have been stymied because of the review process. The, you know They're trying to put out technical certification policy and the bureaucracy just kind of chokes on it. And, and it's the first time they've ever had to do that. The advent of UAS ratcheted up the level of oversight beyond what anybody in the government had ever seen before. So when I was working in an aircraft certification 20 years ago, uh, the FAA could publish advisory circulars pretty much at will and because they're just advisory they don't have any regulatory status they're just a means but not the only means of complying with the rules and that you know we published them regularly it was you know it's was, it was pretty easy the first job i had in headquarters that was our main product the you know the, with the avionics standards branch we published technical standard orders and advisory circulars we had a couple of rule makings but mostly it was those kind of technical policy documents and and they never went outside of the faa now now they have to go through the department and through the OMB, just like rules do. And we've talked about how difficult the rulemaking process is. and so, but uh, if you actually go and talk to the certification folks and and open up a certification project, they give you all of this information that they haven't been able to release publicly so that you can use it on your project.
0: Keeping our focus just a, a little bit more on private industry because, That's where you and I work 24-7 on the private side. One of the observations that I've made over the last couple of years is that we have companies that are caught messaging and promoting technology based on finding the next round of investor. And yet, when this kind of hype comes to the regulators instead of really the reality of what they're trying to accomplish it seems to make the regulatory job even more difficult do you think that there's a way that we can get the industry to adopt some more common of a language you know more reality in what they're trying to pitch and say you know hold hold your investment pitches for somebody else let's talk technology to to the regulators because when you confuse the two you're not going to be happy with the result
1: yeah and and frankly that's part of what I do in my consultancy is to educate the the industry on on what the FAA wants to hear about I, a lot of times I've had clients who go, hey we want to go tell the FAA about all this I'm like, okay why well it's really great technology and we know they're gonna like it and they're gonna they're gonna want us to do it and I'm like but what are you gonna what are you gonna ask them for Well nothing right now we're really not ready to do certification and I'm like, then you're just wasting their time and yours. I said, unless you're going to the FAA to ask for an approval of some sort, you really don't need to. You don't need to go talk to them. It's just a waste of your time. And, and I said, you know, when you're when you're ready to go ask for an approval, a waiver, or a certification, or whatever, then we'll put together a package, explain to them what we're asking, and and you can be successful. So it's just there is a vast, vast, vast level of misunderstanding about what the faa does what their role is what their authority is etc which i'm kind of glad for because that's that's what enables me to be in the business that i'm in which is essentially helping people to understand and effectively use that system to get their projects programs aircraft whatever approved to go fly in the national airspace system
0: which brings us back to a question i've always have been struggling with when it comes to autonomy we know that there are various levels of autonomy, kind of like AI. Um, AI is a generic branding for anything involving machine learning, and autonomy is the generic branding in the aviation industry for any vehicle that moves by itself, seemingly. And the two types of autonomy that, that we see, we have you know, the typical, uh, we'll put out GP- GPS breadcrumbs, and we'll follow those breadcrumbs, and therefore we have an autonomous vehicle, We've got vehicles, other types of vehicles that have perception systems in them. so whether they're lidar based or whether they're uh, visual based, that's how they navigate. what How do you advise your clients to put their arms around autonomy when they're talking to regulators about you know the, the specifics of how that vehicle navigates? Do you get them off of the less precise language and say, okay you got to use GPS, you know you have to, use that language or where does it fall where does it fall jim what do you tell them to to talk about so the the first thing i tell them is
1: don't ever say you have an autonomous aircraft why is that because there's a icao has a a set of standards for what that means and unmanned aircraft systems are divided into two categories uh, remotely piloted and autonomous and autonomous is defined as an aircraft operating without the possibility of intervention from you know a pilot on the ground. Whereas remotely piloted is that there's a there's a pilot in command of that that can affect the you know the flight. So even though a global hawk could take off and fly its whole mission and land without anybody ever touching it, it's not autonomous because there is always a pilot in command who's communicating with that aircraft, who can change its trajectory, alter its mission, even though they don't have to. So it's and so when the FAA hears autonomous, they mean that that to them says, well, you just you can't operate because you have to have a pilot in command. A, a by regulation, but B, if you're interacting with air traffic control, how are you going to react to air traffic control instructions? The aircraft, unless the aircraft has sophisticated voice recognition technology so they could respond as a pilot would to air traffic control instructions you know you're, you're not going to be allowed to operate so highly automated is what i tell them to say you know and, and faa is okay with that i mean just like you said earlier seven you know most modern air carrier aircraft have the ability to do what's called a category 3c auto land which is where the pilots don't have to touch anything until the aircraft they're ready to taxi off the runway so the the FAA is quite comfortable with autonomy but autonomous is a you know is a dirty word to them so understanding the language and understanding that yeah you you want the aircraft to navigate itself no problem you want the aircraft to to avoid automatically avoid obstructions and other aircraft well that you know that's a little bit more of a challenge but it's it's doable just like the Airbus is putting automatic TCAS maneuvers in their aircraft, so that if a TCAS maneuver is is warranted and the pilot doesn't initiate it, the autopilot will take over. But the pilot still has the ability to override that if they think it's it's not safe. And I think that's kind of a, a foundational issue that I I try to get across to the to my clients who want to do highly automated operations, understanding the the regulatory structure that you got to fit in. And and I haven't yet. Talk to anybody who really had a truly autonomous aircraft
0: let's talk a little bit now about pilot licensing because i, I think it kind of flows from that mm-hmm. given the fact that there will for the foreseeable future be a pilot in command over these autonomous vehicles but i have to be careful how i use that right now as you know we, we see just really one level of remote pilot and command license you know it's under part 107. And yet, if you look at the analog, which are the types of licenses available for, I'll call it, manned aviation, you've got private pilot licenses, and you know the routine, you've got commercial mm-hmm. pilot licenses, multi-engine, airline transport pilot licenses, and they, they seem to vary with the complexity of the operation. So, if you got something really complex, where you're flying a lot of people around, of course, you need to have that ATP, the Air Transport Pilot License. And if it's just yourself that's putting the world in danger in a small Cessna, we'll give you a private pilot's license. Do you Mm -hmm. envision the day where UAS systems are going to have varying levels of pilot licensure? And what should that level of licensure be tracked against? Is it the complexity of the vehicle or or what? What do you think?
1: Well, I think it's going to have more to do with the... Where you're going to operate. You know, if you're going to go operate in a terminal environment, for example, and you're going to have to interact with air traffic control and remotely pilot your aircraft in response to air traffic control communications, you're going to need to know a lot more than a 107 pilot certificate. On the other hand, is it the same as a private pilot? Well, no, because a lot of the private pilot uh, requirements are about. You know, hours of operations, stick and rudder skills, things that aren't really applicable to operating an unmanned aircraft. So, I, yeah, I think that eventually you will see the pilot regulations creating, you know, new new types of certificate for unmanned pilots as as time goes on. But it's not it's not super critical because there's you can get a um, private pilot's license or a, even a light sport pilot's license fairly easily and so the the restrictions aren't a barrier if you will to operations
0: yeah well for my part i just can't and look i'm biased every the listeners know that my background is as a commercial pilot and i'm just biased you know to to the thought that maybe the most complex system that involves the most risk that involves you know, really the the highest level of safety you need are the quote-unquote autonomous systems where you push a button and let it go fly its pre-programmed mission making navigation decisions on its own. And maybe, you know, that's where the Uber remote pilot certificate, you know, needs to be placed. But, you know, again, I, I have a bias in all of this. Jim, let's transition and talk just a little bit about vehicle safety. And I guess this may extend to the safety of the corporations that are operating these vehicles. What capabilities do you think that a company or an operator needs to possess so that they can convince the FAA that they're gonna be a sensible operator, that they're gonna be a good custodian of this technology and they're not gonna hurt people with it?
1: Well, let's break that down into two pieces. So there's the, the safety that comes from the vehicle that's being operated the unmanned aircraft and then there's a the safety from the from the operator themselves the vehicle i think the the biggest thing that most of the companies on the vehicle side don't don't really get is that a lot of your approval from the faa comes in your demonstrated reliability of that aircraft if you're continually making changes to the aircraft you never really get an opportunity to demonstrate any sort of level of reliability to it. So if you don't know what changes are taking place and you don't know and you don't have any control about how those changes are made, you basically build no credibility for the reliability of your aircraft. So the sort of the foundation that a lot of a lot of the aircraft manufacturers need to build on is good solid configuration management, quality assurance, you know, those those are kind of the foundation of of any aircraft that the faa is going to approve on the operator side it's it's similar in that your your level of trust from the faa is based on your your demonstrated history of compliance with the rules and safe operations so if you look at an airline for example the airlines have a tremendous amount of delegated responsibility from the faa i mean they can do all kinds of approvals on their own for maintenance that you, if you're an individual and you own your aircraft, you have to, you know, you have to pay people to do this stuff for you. But the airlines all can, can train their own pilots. They can train their own mechanics. They have the ability to make changes to their aircraft within limits, you know, and all of these are essentially delegated authorities from the FAA. And that's, and and a lot of that is based on their, their history. So, it's very difficult to get an air carrier certificate because you have to show the FAA that you have all of these uh, systems in place and that you've got the ability to uh, you know maintain the aircraft, train the pilots, et cetera. If you want to have that you know same level trust from the FAA, you're going to have to build a similar level of structure around your operations. You know you're going to have to, keep track of the maintenance of your aircraft, the keep track of the configurations of your aircraft. You're going to have to keep track of your pilots. How many hours do they have? What kind of training have they have? Even though the FAA doesn't require any practical training for a 107 license, there's a lot of uh, third party training available that uh, you know basically helps you reduce your, your risk of operations. So the more you make your operation look like a commercial manned aircraft operation, the more the FAA is gonna trust you, the more they're gonna you know, take your word for things as opposed to going in and verifying and, and looking at everything down to the, to the lowest level.
0: Which makes me wonder, Jim, if there's an organization called Honest Ken and Honest Jim's Drone Manufacturing Company, do we get placed at a disadvantage if we're being compared against the same kind of standards that say a General Atomics or a Boeing or fill in the blank are holding themselves to because they have more infrastructure they've got more money i mean are we locking the the entry level businesses out of the process by doing that
1: no because the faa has dealt with you know sort of entry-level aircraft for a very long time the whole concept of light sport aircraft even you know part 107 is built on the same logic as part 103 for ultralights Uh, Ultralights don't have to be certified. They're not, they're not considered aircraft, they're considered vehicles. And the FAA did that because all aircraft are required to have an airworthiness certificate until 2012. So you can have an aircraft, you know, take off weight with passenger up to 350 pounds, and it's not, and people ride in them, and there's no certification on it. And so companies are out there building them, they build them to the good ones build them to standards, ASTM standards for construction, so that they're, you know, people don't get killed in them. But there's no FAA certification around them. So there's this graduated level of interaction with the FAA. Light sport aircraft, you don't, you don't, you can issue airworthiness certificates without having to have a, a design approval if you follow the ASTM standards for light sport aircraft and you certify to the FAA that you're building to them. So the you know there there is a way forward for joe uas manufacturer to get into the system and become part of the the approved aircraft methodology uh now granted the faa hasn't made it easy because there's no how-to guides out there like there is for but they're coming the astm standards are maturing rapidly and the faa is in the process of putting together a set of guidelines that'll allow self-certification within within certain bounds based on demonstrated reliability and performance. So I you know, I think that, that that's coming, that everybody isn't being held to the Boeing standard.
0: And that kind of gives me hope for Honest Jim and Ken's drone company. So um, <laughs> I just wanna end the show with just a, a question or two about UTM, because that, that seems to be where we're seeing a lot of effort being expended by a lot of big companies. And let's talk about how autonomy either helps or hurts the mission of UTM or the job of UTM. My, my proposition is you know I, I think these UTM systems are great but if autonomy allows one pilot to operate 300 vehicles all we've done is create a, a system that will have a very high probability of being overwhelmed. Do you see issues with there being too much autonomy? And do you see there being issues with too many promises for UTM about trying to keep these vehicles separate where maybe we're gonna wind up in a situation where we just have too many vehicles to control and no single UTM solution is gonna be able to, to control all those vehicles?
1: Well, the thing that worries me about UTM is it seems to be everything to everybody, but yet go you know, show me the, the UTM standard that tells me what it really is. I mean, right now UTM is a research program out of NASA uh, designed to try to provide some level of of organization to uncontrolled airspace. And you know it's just it's going through its fourth uh, flight testing. this is the most sophisticated one. and out of that hopefully will come some information that can get transferred to the FAA. but unless the FAA picks it up and says, okay, yeah, we think this will work. we're gonna you know we're gonna endorse a standard way of doing it. It's really just, you know, a research program, and so I'm I'm concerned that too many people are putting too much faith in, you know, something right now that's very researchy and isn't isn't real from the standpoint of can I use this UTM thing to enable my operations? I think both Amazon and Google think that you know they know exactly what it is and they're gonna you know they're gonna put it into place when they start doing deliveries. But that's a those are systems designed by them for them. Are they really going to be compatible with anybody else? And, you know, what level of delegated authority is the FAA going to give to those UTM service suppliers? Uh, it's still, you know, to me, that's, there's a lot of uncertainty in UTM. It has a lot of promise, don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not bad-mouthing it. It's And I think it is an enabler to doing low-level operations with, with lots of aircraft, but there's still, a lot of unanswered an questions about how you deal with non-participants, how you deal with uh, interfacing, how you deal with the fairness of, you know, if there's a if there becomes a limit to access, who gets to decide who gets in and who doesn't, you know. So there's a lot of there's still a lot of uncertainty there. And hopefully the results of this, the ongoing, you know, they're currently ongoing with NASA's fourth, fourth go around and the one that's closest to what I would call real world testing is going on now and then the real question mark is is what does the faa do with this because nasa can only take it so far faa's gotta gotta take it from there and turn it into something real and usable
0: well jim you just had the last word and thank you so much for being on thinking through autonomy this has just been fantastic i want to thank you for your contributions to driving this revolution and for getting the industry and the government off to a great start through your time at the FAA. Thank you so much.
1: Well, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure.